We're going to read Acts chapter 9, and let me pray before I do that. Our Father, we thank you that you used the things that happened long ago to speak to us today. We don't know how you do it, but we pray that you will do it tonight as we study the Bible. Take what we hear in Acts chapter 9 and help us to see how it helps us in our lives today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I would show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose up and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. 
And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day, by day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, well now we're going to have a second reading. And... It's on the same page as the first reading, but we haven't got it on the screen for you, so you just have to listen. Ready? Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats, which made breathing quite difficult. But Christians did get up Saul's nose. So he tried to make life difficult for them. Mainly by killing them. He was helped by the high priest. You mean like the archbishop? No, not that high. Anyway, this high priest gave him a company of soldiers to accompany him. A company of synagogues to help him. And company sandals to travel in. <laughs> so off they rode. Down the road to Damascus. Where the Christians spent their time... In committees. I'm sorry, that should read, in committing this matter to prayer. Please, Lord, you told us to love our enemies, Lord. And so we love Saul, Lord, and pray for him, Lord. That you will have your hand upon him as he comes to Damascus, Lord. And send him off to holiday in Spain. <laughs> but Saul kept on coming. And the Christians kept on praying. But he kept on coming. And then suddenly, while the Christians were biting their lips, Saul bit the dust. A bright light shone around him. And a voice spoke clearly to him. Saul, why are you persecuting me? There was silence. And finally, Saul asked shakily, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus 
the one you are persecuting. The voice was even, without any hatred. Now enter the city and I'll tell you what you must do. With that, there was silence again. While the soldiers gave Saul a hand to lean on. And Saul gave them a hand to lead on. All the way to Damascus. Where the Christians were still praying. For Saul to go away to Spain. That's when God spoke straight to Ananias. Ananias, go straight to Saul. On straight street. Straight away, please. Now, Ananias believed God. Had got it wrong this time. He nervously reminded God about Saul the menace. But God had plans for Saul the menace. To become Paul the messenger. When Ananias heard God, he couldn't believe his ears. And when he saw Saul, he couldn't believe his eyes. Because Saul, who once hated Jesus, was now talking to him. Ananias nervously touched him. And Saul immediately received his sight. The Holy Spirit. A brand new life. A meal. And a nervous brother called Ananias. After this, Saul spent most of his life still going after Christians. To help them. And they say that God helped Saul to eventually get to Spain. Well, that's not quite how Luke wrote it, but most of it <laughs> comes from Luke and Acts chapter 9. Well, let me ask you a question as we start. What would you feel like if you were setting your sat-nav to go down to the sunny warmth of uh, Land's End in Cornwall, right at the bottom of the country, way down there, and you ended up instead opening the car door and you find yourself in the freezing northern coast of Scotland at Johnny Groats, which is up there. What would you think? What would you do? You'd probably sell the sat-nav as useless. You'd probably sack the wife because it's always her fault and always easy to blame somebody else. And then you realise you set the sat-nav and actually the whole distance that you've got wrong is entirely your fault. But that's exactly what it's like. Can you just imagine what it's like to live your life and you're flat out trying to please God and you discover that you've lived the worst life ever. And that's exactly what it hap happened to this man we've been reading about, the Apostle Paul, or the uh, uh, man called Saul in the stories we first meet him. And God interrupts his story and he changes the direction of the life. And the amazing thing is that God uses his story to interrupt us and to change the direction of our lives too. We see that as we discover two things about God that we find out in this chapter. First is that God is a very gracious God. Now you can look at uh, Acts chapter 9 verse 1 and you will see that Saul is a murderous figure. It says the same thing in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 as well. That he is a man who is, as we just read in our second reading, a menace. But actually Saul didn't think of himself as a menace. He saw himself as a man who was a good man and the high priest liked him as well in verse 2. 
And let me tell you, he is one impressive man. Someone who was one of the most respectable people you could ever meet. We all respect people who come from either Oxford or Cambridge, and we know that they're bright. And Saul came from the university town of Tarsus. And all the bright students in that region went there. He's a very clever man. He spoke three languages fluently. He spoke Greek, he spoke uh, uh, Latin, and he spoke Aramaic, the native Hebrew tongue. And he was someone who was uh, highly accomplished. And he had the very best teacher. He studied his PhD under a man called Gamaliel. If you look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 34, you see that Gamaliel was someone who was uh, highly respected, in, held in honor by all the people. And when he gave orders in Acts chapter 5 verse 34, everybody listened. And Saul was his best student. Tell you, let me tell you, Saul is the very best man that they've got in Jerusalem at that time. <coughs> and he comes from a very impressive family too. Why later we'll see how his uh, sister's son, his nephew, discovered a plot going on amongst the Jewish priests. And he told Saul about the plot. Uh, because they were plotting to kill him. Now let me tell you, for him to hear that kind of conversation means that he moved in the highest circles. And when that young man went into the army barracks and he spoke to the highest Roman commander at that time, and he would have been a very senior military figure, and yet he gives this young man respect and listens to what the young man tells him to do, and he does it. So here is a man of great influence. He was born a Roman citizen. The Roman commander said that he had to buy his citizenship. Paul had it given to him at birth. And therefore he had all the passports of all the different countries, which, let me tell you, came in very useful for him, not just when he was going after Christians, but later as he traveled all around that area as well. Deeply uh, impressive, highly connected, and very determined. So he gets the letters and he sets off for Damascus and you might think, well that's just going down to Asda's down the road. Let me tell you, Damascus is 150 miles away and he's got to leg it. Okay? Which means that if he's going to take a day off in his week, he's going to be traveling 25 miles every single day to accomplish his mission. Now let me tell you, I creak after seven miles. And that's normally because I've had to carry Debbie after mile six. <laughs> so none of us can go that far. He goes that far and beyond every single day. He is a determined man. And yet he meets up with an even more determined God. And the great determination of God is not actually just to get Saul, but to get the whole world of non-Jewish people that uh, the Bible refers to as Gentiles. So he's got this whole plan to win all the nations. And Saul is just drawn in as a, an instrument for him to do that. You can see that in chapter 9 and verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, 
and before the children of Israel. Yes, Saul, but beyond Saul. Everyone that Saul knows, and people that Saul doesn't know. And my friends, it is just important for us to see that. When God, God chooses to save somebody, when God chooses to make someone a Christian, he's got a whole lot more in his mind than just the person that he's saving. He's looking at every single person they know and new people that they don't know. He's going to take this person and make them a chosen instrument for way more than just that one person himself. And so God is wonderfully gracious to Saul. The plans are big and the plans are long. As it says in your notes, uh, you discover in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 1, and uh, if you want to turn to it, I'll tell you what page number it is. Uh, it's on page number 972. And Galatians chapter 1, and uh, you see how when uh, Saul... I'll tell you what, I'll even let you cheat and I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, when uh, uh, Saul looked at uh, what had happened to him, he realized that God didn't call him while he was packing his rucksack to leave Jerusalem to go to Damascus. Why, God had chosen Saul even before he was born to do this work for him. But when he, he who has set me apart before I was born and call me by his grace. He is such a gracious God that he would permit Saul to have years and years of rebellious um, aggression against him and then bring him back to do what verse 16 says he was called back to do. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So gracious God, plan of God is, is far Bigger, it includes far more people, and it goes back further than Acts chapter 9. Way back the time when that Paul was a baby. And God's plans are to save people. And those plans are there when it seems like at the moment the Christians are in retreat and God seems to be doing nothing about it. It is just like uh, kids at this time of year, isn't it? They whinge and you tell them to tidy up their room and put away their toys and they get uh, cross with their parents. They say, no one loves me in this house. And they have no idea that all year the parents have been planning that special Christmas present that they're going to give them come Christmas Day. The love has been there right from the start. Mercy is uh, going out of the Black Friday says to get everything for a baby. The baby hasn't yet born. Why? Because this is how grace operates. The baby hasn't done anything to win Mercy's favor, apart from kick her a few times. But nonetheless, there is this wonderful provision and joy that uh, she has for her child. And God's like that with us. He has great plans. He is very gracious. And that's why Luke tells us how Saul became a Christian actually three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and again Acts chapter 26. And each time he brings out a different angle on God's grace. So on this time, he doesn't tell us how uh, God graciously took Saul on a wonderful preaching trip all around Arabia. I think uh, that actually probably happened. 
uh, between verses 22 and verse 23, but it gets left out here. And God is gracious in so many ways. And you can see that in the conversation and how it developed when Jesus met Saul on the road. What does he do? He doesn't shout at him with matching anger. What does he do? He asks him a question. Now my friends, why do you ask anybody a question? Because you want an answer. Why do you want a question and answer? It draws people into a relationship with you. As two come together in conversation and in communication with each other. And so God draws people, uh, draws Saul into a relationship with himself. Now you might say, it doesn't sound to me that God's being very gracious when he knocks him to the ground with a bright light. But you might just remember the story when God met Moses in the desert and there was bright light, in that case it was a fire. And Moses heard his name mentioned twice. And God spoke to Moses. And it's a little bit of that repeating itself here. And he doesn't need to get angry with Saul. Just by addressing him as Saul and explaining that this is Jesus, that on its own will deal three hammer blows to Saul's way of thinking. First, it tells Saul that Jesus is alive. He was convinced that Jesus was long dead. But this Jesus is absolutely alive. What a discovery. Secondly, he discovers that Christians are his people. He thought the Jews were the people of God and the Christians were just people who are distraction on the side. Now he finds actually the Christians are the very people of God in the way the Jews were in the Old Testament. And the third thing he discovers is that when actually you attack Christians, you attack the living God himself. There is nothing more serious than you can do. He was seriously against God and comes to see that. Just with the question that Jesus asks. It tells him all those three things. Now what might you expect God to do against somebody who is struck at him in such a violent way? My friends, if you want to know what the God of the Quran will do, just read it. It will make your blood turn cold. Because nothing but retaliation comes to those who have offended the God of Islam. And it's not Saul that's breathing fire and threats. It's the God of Islam that breathes fire and threats against anybody that crosses him. And yet here is Saul. And God wonderfully... Uh, invites him and doesn't eliminate him but engages him or employs him even to do a job of work for him that will be revealed to him. And so looking back on the whole thing you ask Saul what did you learn that day about God and he will say I discovered that God is very gracious. Now you can see him learning that lesson. I this time haven't put it on the screen but you can see that if you look at one Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. I'll tell you again what page number it is. And uh, it's on page uh, 991. So go to page 919. It's on the right hand side. It hasn't got a page number. You're meant to know that. Okay. 
1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Got that? We've left the heating on too long. You're hot and you're getting slow. Uh, I'll turn it off and then you get cold and faster. Okay. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Now Rona's breathing fire and threats at me for suggesting that she gets uh, cooled down. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 15. The, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost or the worst. And when Saul tells you that he's the worst of sinners, he's not, he's not telling you, look, I'm not a very good sinner, uh, as if uh, even I, I couldn't even get that right. Uh, he's telling you, I'm the chief of sinners. And so if you were here last week, you just need to move Adolf Hitler out of your mind at the bottom of the scale and stick the Apostle Paul in instead because the Apostle Paul was evil uh, because uh, Saul was evil Adolf Hitler was evil but Saul was worse because he did it in the name of God and he therefore dragged the reputation of God through the dust and Saul therefore is the chief of sinners and God is nonetheless gracious to him because you see in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who are to believe in him for eternal life my friend the whole reason why God was this gracious to Saul is for you so you get to understand what a gracious God this is this is how he treats people like Saul. Well then, look in the mirror and see how God might treat someone like you. And he is a very gracious God. You might say, okay, uh, I'll believe that to a point, but then why does he have to go and blind Saul that he then has to stay blind for three days? Isn't that part of God's judgment on this man? Well, it's true that when you look at the New Testament, blindness and spiritual unbelief are two things that reflect each other. And certainly in that sense, it was descriptive of the Apostle Paul and how he had been. But if you look at another part of the Bible, at 2 uh, Kings chapter 6, I think I'll put it down in your notes, verses 8 to 23, and you will discover how uh, a true story of a, a general, a, a, a king of... Uh, uh, the enemies of God's people, takes his army with him and he goes to see Elijah. And he wants to capture Elijah because ultimately he wants to get the upper hand on God's people. And Elijah basically prays to God and this man, this king, goes blind and he and the whole army get blind. And Elijah leads them all the way to the front door of the king of Israel who says, okay, here's my big chance to kill all my enemies. And Elijah says, no, you don't. We're going to set in front of them a great feast. And so, uh, I don't know if I can uh, get there fast, but uh, in uh, 2 Kings and in chapter 6 and verse 23, uh, you will see that uh, what they did was, so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Why? Because they are such a gracious people. Who would want to strike against them? 
And in the same way, Saul's blindness is replaced with blessing. And we'll see that in a moment after Ananias comes. You can see, my friends, what sort of gracious God he is, and therefore what sort of justice you and I might want to see in our world where there are people like Saul who are ruthless and who go out of their way to do as much harm as they can. How are we meant to react to people like that? Are we meant to grumble at God and say, look, uh, you shouldn't let people like that off the hook? Isn't it true to say that the people who live the worst are the ones who will be able to discover most of all how God is gracious and talk about it and commend it and in the end be completely transformed, no longer to be a murderer but to go 100% in the opposite direction. Now wouldn't you want the people who do evil in our world to be like that? Why do you want to just simply take them off? When God can wonderfully turn them around. And it's all, always important, isn't it? When we see evil things happening to Christians, and I think it's around the world that you find a Christian dies every eight minutes out of persecution. Is it wonderful to realize that actually in these times when we feel sorry for the people, we need to understand the seriousness of what's going on. These people are striking against the true and living God. We need to pray that God will be gracious to them. I was away last week and uh, a South African girl was telling us about her grandmother who was 84 and she was uh, uh, raped uh, by people who broke into her house and for some unknown reason this grandmother took her grandchildren into a coffee shop and decided to tell them all the gory details of what had taken place and this girl ran out the shop furious with anger and crying her eyes out and her granny chased after her and said why are you crying we know we are saved these men are not we need to pray for them how wonderful to to want a violent evil world to come face to face with such a compassionate God and a gracious God and the second lesson we need to know is that this gracious God sends caring brothers and uh, Ananias enters the picture to bring Saul in from the cold. Now you can see in verse 10 that Ananias doesn't want to be on the welcome committee and uh, God says to Ananias, let me tell you about this man and what he has done and Ananias says, I know this man. I've heard from him from many people. And I know who he is. And he's come to arrest me. And now you've only gone and given him my name. And now you want me to go and open up his eyes? But he goes. And when he gets there, he doesn't make Saul feel like he's been an enemy. But a brother. It's amazing, isn't it? The first words that this great violent killer of Christians hears 
from someone that he has hated for so long and the two words that he hears, the first words that he hears, Brother Saul. And therefore, it's just helpful for us to see that when God ever meets somebody, he brings them into his family, not just to sit in a church and sing songs on a Sunday, but the whole reason why God brings people in is to have a brother-sister closeness and relationship with the people who are there. And that's why Saul, if you look at verse 19, immediately spends his time with the disciples for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. Of course, if you have brothers and sisters, you want to spend time with them. And as much time as you can. And then when he goes off to Jerusalem in verse 26, I know they don't want to see him, but he tries to meet with the disciples. The caring brothers are what he wants to be in touch with. Now my friends, you can do bird watching quite happily on your own without belonging to a bird watching society, but you can't be a Christian all on your own. And you can't be a Christian just on Sundays with your contact with Christians and you're staring at the backs of their heads. The only way we can ever understand God and to show that we have understood him and that we are part of his family, the surefire way of knowing that is if you have brother relationships and sister relationships with the Christians that you meet with. And if that desire to have brother-sister closeness with your local Christians and family of Christians, if the desire isn't there, my friends, let me be honest with you and tell you the, dis the discipleship isn't there. You've got the name, it's just not real. And you can see how the blessings that God gives to Saul in verse 18 are only experienced after he has been drawn into his new family. Doesn't happen when he's independent and on his own. And so the caring uh, church is uh, there and so is uh, uh, Barnabas when he gets to Jerusalem. The caring brothers that look after Saul and uh, make uh, life uh, there for him. And a brother describes the relationship we have with our church family. The only word that will describe it, if it's to mean anything at all. But the second thing you learn is that actually this relationship is important because when you become a Christian, here's the second thing, you speak about Jesus to others and it doesn't always go down well. And you see that that happened in the synagogue in verse 20, and Saul is there, and you can just imagine, can't you, what happened? There's uh, the synagogue, and uh, they all stand up when he walks in, because he's an important figure, and they've got the special guest chair ready and waiting for him, and they say, hello, Saul, we have been expecting you. Thank you for coming. We want to welcome you warmly to Damascus. And here is the scroll. Will you please read the Bible and teach it to us? And Saul, if you were here last week, has now become a one Bible man. He understands how the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And so therefore, in verse 20, he explains Jesus 
is the Son of God from the Scriptures. And so uh, the new man gives them a completely different message to the one that they're expecting. Of course, they're all shocked in verse 21. Uh, all who heard him were amazed and said, uh, what do you make of this? We weren't expecting to hear anything like this when he came, given his uh, track record of the past. And they try and talk him out of it in verse 22. But Saul increases all the more in strength. He confounds the Jews. But of course, they're up against the very best. He knows their scriptures better than anyone. He can tell them what they mean. And so what they do in verse 23 instead is they plot to kill him. And so becomes the first of many occasions when Saul feels rejected and driven away. My friends, that is the experience of any genuine Christian who is going out with the gospel and wanting to make other people realize just who Jesus is. And largely that will go down like a lead balloon. You need a family of Christians to help you cope with that shock and disappointment and rejection. And so down he goes from being the man who was once the person with so much authority in chapter 7 verse 58, he didn't even have to get his hands dirty throwing stones because he was far too important for that. He organized the death squad. He's in command of all the death squads. And he gives them the instructions to kill and he's got the coats because they uh, uh, have entrusted him to, to look after them while he uh, supervises everything. And there he is, the number one important figure in Acts chapter 7 at the end. And now what happens? He's the man who's got to be dropped down from the city wall with the laundry in the basket. And so he has to escape. Now we haven't got time to look at Barnabas in verse 27, apart from the fact that actually here are two brothers, and uh, uh, Christian brothers to Saul, and uh, they uh, are there as part of God's welcome for the new person listening to God and coming in. Now, my friends, just notice that Ananias only appears here. You won't read about him anywhere else in the Bible. He's only got this small walk-on, walk-off part. But the reason why he's in the Bible is because he was used and he was involved in the welcoming of someone who was near, coming into a strange place, into people that he wasn't sure how their reaction would be towards him. And Ananias is the one who is the brother who cares. My friends, if you were the brother who cares, this is how the Bible recognizes the value. And Ananias has his place. And Barnabas, where we met him before, he's been the great encourager. Now, he's no great preacher himself, but because of him, Saul preaches in Jerusalem. Because of him, Saul will preach in Antioch later. There are people who may not think that they do greatly, but because of them, there are Christian ministers who are on their feet and speaking because of the local brothers who care for them. Well, what are the lessons for us to take home from all of that? Well, the first lesson, I think, you might see a person with a smug face 
and I'm thinking that you might be someone who's not a Christian. And you're not someone who's like Saul in the sense that you've broken all the rules. You're someone like Saul in the sense that you are a good person. If anything, you would expect God to be happy with you because you are a family person, you care for those around you, you do your best to help as much as you can. And you certainly don't think you need Jesus to be good because you are good. My friend, I want to let this, ask you to let this story interrupt those views of yourself as a person who is uh, uh, smug in your goodness and to see that the worst thing you could ever do in your life is to get Jesus wrong. And what happens in the end, the worst thing that could happen to you is you sat, set your sat nav of goodness and you think that generally this is going to be the right path to life and you expect to get to God at the other end or maybe you don't but you think there's nothing bad going to happen to you because you've been good and you find yourself rather like the traveller to uh, Land's End hoping for some sunshine, you open up the car door and you find you've landed yourself in freezing hell. I don't want to link Scotland with hell although there are some parallels but nonetheless it is a it is a, a great surprise, isn't it? If you think that you're going for heaven and you find yourself arriving in hell. Let me tell you, friends, there are people who discovered that. All you've got to do is look at Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 to 23 and there are people who tell Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles and all sorts of things in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew you. The satnav of life was all wrong. And here's the God of the Bible interrupting you through this story that we find about another time he interrupted someone to show you that here is a gracious God and he is not to be treated lightly and who wants to draw you into relationship with himself and will give you caring brothers to look after you as you come in. But be uh, wanting to uh, serve this Jesus with your whole life rather than just uh, thinking that he's a spare part and okay for other people. What happens if you've been to church lots? Well, you can see actually that uh, Saul was clearly a prominent part of God's people. So this time you would say a person like that would be in the church, not outside it. He knew the Bible. He belonged to the place where the Bible was studied. He, didn't, he wasn't like the people outside who, had, who knew nothing. But I want to suggest to you that it'll be a good thing to, if you've been to church all your life, and I guess that uh, many people here have, that you put yourself <laughs> through the three love test. Have you got in your heart of hearts, not just in your mind a lot of Bible knowledge, but in your heart do you have a love for Jesus? A love for Jesus so much that you delight when he speaks to you and that you speak to him. So daily you are in fellowship with him because you love him and you want to hear his voice and you want to speak back to him. Huge gratitude for his compassion, for his grace. Do you have a love for Jesus? Do you have a love, a brother-sister love for Christians in your local church 
or are they relative strangers to you? Now, lots of people go to church and they say hello at the door and they say goodbye at the door and they don't know the brothers and the sisters. Do you know people well enough to know what's on their hearts? What's uh, concerning them, what their worries are, what their joys are. Do you have that relationship with people? At that depth, do you have a love for the brothers? And do you have a love for others who don't know Jesus? Or is it just a private thing between you and God? And as long as you and God think you're happy together, then, then that's all that matters. Do you have a passionate love for every single member in your family to follow the Lord Jesus. That is why God saved individuals because he's got other people in his mind. Do you basically pray for your sister when you go on holiday with her? Do you want to basically pray, God please open the door for me to talk to her about Jesus? Would you basically go to your uh, other family and talk to them about the Lord Jesus. At least pray for opportunity that the door will open for that. Will you join us as we go out to our estate? Will you have a love for people who don't know Jesus in order they might be brought in to his kingdom? Now lots of people who have good church connections but fail the three love test. How are you doing on that one? Or it may be that you are a real believer. Let me define a real believer. A real believer is someone who is living flat out for other people to become real believers. But it may be you're a real believer and um, it's a good thing for the scales to fall off your eyes and to see three things as they really are. First, that actually you are forgivable. If you're a Christian, I don't think the non-Christian worries too much about the things that they've got wrong. But Christians, when we get it wrong, it seriously upsets us. And it may be that you think, you know, you've just gone too far, you've done it once too often for God to forgive. My friends, you are always forgivable. If you think you are not, come and tell me later. What makes you worse than the apostles, uh, worse than, 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 than the persecutor Saul? And if you can't think of anything that makes you worse than Saul, then it's high time you stood up to the devil and said, Shut up, I won't believe your lies anymore. Believers are forgivable. They know that anyone is savable. That is, there is no one outside the reach of Jesus if Saul is within his plans. And that's what the disciples would have been praying for. Now my friends, it would not have been believing prayer. None of the disciples would have believed that this would happen to Saul and that the outcome would be quite like this. They wouldn't have prayed believing prayer, but they prayed. And God graciously answered. And if you can see it happen here, well, believe it can happen with you and the people that you love. Your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian family, our non-Christian estate. 
And thirdly, just like uh, uh, the middle uh, of that slide, remember that uh, we can be lovable in these three ways. Loving Jesus, loving the way that he loves us who have failed him. Loving brothers and sisters, knowing that they'll be coming in from the battlefield where they've been rejected by the world of unbelievers outside and they need you to be their warm, welcoming brother and sister when they're walking through this door. And <coughs> lastly, believe and grow a love for outsiders who don't know Jesus, like, the, like Saul. Because God has a plan for people that they don't know about, that may go back to the time that they were born and before. And it's wonderful for us to take his love to them and to make it known. I'll stop there. I want you to pray one minute by yourself, quietly, privately. Pray for what you think the take-home application is for you. I'll leave the slide up and you can look at it and maybe choose one of those three responses that you want to make. And then in a minute's time, I'll pray for all of us and then I'll take questions and uh, we'll chat together. Let's first have a moment of prayer. Well, our minute's up, so let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that often what we think is good, you are likely to see as evil. And we ask, therefore, that you would please have mercy on us. And would you deepen our love for the Lord Jesus, our love for each other in this church, and our love for those who live around us, in our lives at home and at work, and in the estate that surrounds us tonight. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.